LA County is one of those counties that have been hit extremely hard because their patient population is so large and their capacity is so small that they have actually told some of their EMS personnel that if a patient has known to be COVID and they have a lot of comorbidities and they appear extremely sick, to consider not transporting them to the hospital. That's Dr. Paul Bajwa, an emergency medicine physician who shares firsthand how the system in the U.S. was never prepared to handle such an overwhelming public health disaster. In our conversation with Dr. Bajwa, we discussed the silent yet widespread effect the pandemic is having on our frontline workers, the mental health and well-being of our doctors, nurses, and medical practitioners seems to go unnoticed. And yet, despite this undeniable emotional and physical strain, they're the ones we turn to for help while demanding perfection. It's really an impossible proposition. On the other end of that phone call to our emergency services is Melitza Rangel, a loving daughter, a protective mother, and a practicing nurse. Melitza shares the devastating story of how her father paid the ultimate price while protecting her from the disease, and all because of an overwhelmed and broken system. And yet, for someone experiencing such loss, Melitza understands the heavy weight and burden placed on our healthcare workers and speaks with empathy when sharing her story. So my sisters call EMS so they can pick up my father. And then maybe two hours passed and EMS never came. My sisters called EMS again and EMS told them that there was no space, that they couldn't pick it up. So they canceled the ambulance services for my father. At that point, my sister came immediately to pick up my dad. She put on full PPE and rushed him to the hospital. That was the only option we had. I'm Justin Beck, founder and CEO of Contact World. I'm here with my co-hosts, Catherine Delson and Deepti Pava. And over the coming months, we'll be talking to scientists, researchers, celebrities, experts, anyone who's been affected by COVID, and getting to the bottom of how we can improve public health together. We may not have all the answers, but you deserve to understand what goes on in your neighborhood and the decisions that will affect you and your family's health. Welcome to Contact World. We're here to share two stories with you today. This is a bit of a heavy episode, but we need to bring attention to these topics. The show is about truth. So one day when we look back at the overall carnage of this pandemic, the emotional and mental toll this has had on society as a whole is really underestimated. I mean, I haven't seen friends or socialized since March, but I sometimes remind myself how relatively easy I have it. But to think of being a frontline worker in what's become a normal day in a clinical environment is another story altogether. I mean, we're going to see post-traumatic stress disorder. These heroes haven't even had the time to mentally unpack what's happening to them. What do you two think about the mental anguish and stress of the pandemic and how it's affected our hospitals and clinical environments? So, you know, Justin, I feel that even before we begin to think about mental health or even, you know, move beyond the current crisis, we all need to first reckon with the scale of what has been experienced, right? Our frontline healthcare workers are among the most vulnerable populations at this point in time. And as research shows that the risks to the well-being of these healthcare workers are not even well understood. Forget about trying to solve for those issues. 
I think the key thing with mental health right now is, do we have the ability to self-check? Do we have that moment where we're able to check in with ourselves and make sure everything's okay? And when you're working, you know, as a physician in the hospital or you're a nurse and you're there around people that are dying and suffering and hurting, perhaps you're so busy helping everyone else, you don't have that ability to stop and make sure that you're mentally well. I was thinking the other day about how we put a cap on over-the-road truckers and how much time that they can spend on the road. Or we put a cap on how many transcontinental or transoceanic flights a pilot might take because of the impact that their decision-making might have on lives of people, right? You can't put a trucker on the road for 14 hours a day because he might crash. But we don't put health or mental wellness or well-being programs in place for our frontline workers. And they're in the same decision-making capacity, matters of life and death. And they are working seven days a week in some instances, too many hours a day. They inevitably are going to make bad decisions or they're going to miss things because it's impossible for a human to endure the anguish that they're going through, the amount of time they're working. And then you multiply that by the pain of decision-making that they have to go through every day, sometimes literally denying people critical care. It's unbelievable. Yeah, true, Justin. What you're saying is, you know, it's so sad to see that how little we have been prepared in terms of providing care to people who are responsible for caring for us, and that came through during this pandemic. Why don't we have ancillary services or frequent visits to psychologists for these healthcare workers? That's something very basic they should be having access to. Right. I agree with both of you, but I struggle to say that we should limit the time that they spend because there are shortages. It's a tough thing to say, but do we want to turn people away from the hospital because there's no doctor on shift? It's almost like we're in crisis and we need them so much. But then at the same time, we want them to be clear and level-headed enough to make the right decisions. It's a horrible situation. It really is. There is a need for better preparation. And when we talk about better preparation, you know, we are not prepared for such emergencies, right? I believe this gives us a perfect platform to think about such issues. So if at all something like this happens again, we do not face the situation. We don't have to make that compromise that we're making today. You know, in hindsight is 2020. And I think that we're not talking about pivoting the way that we're handling it now. But what we need to do is we know we need to better resource health agencies and we need to change the way we've thought about clinical care based on what we're putting these doctors through, you know, a few years down the road when they really have a chance to think about what they've gone through, we're probably going to see unprecedented amounts of PTSD, suicides from frontline health workers. We're not going to know what the real long-term impact of this is until we're looking back at it. And you're right. What we need to do is take a very honest look at the way we've managed this, the way that we've been prepared for it or unprepared for it. And we have to be ready to change things drastically in some cases. I agree. It begins with the conversation. And Deep T, I know this episode focuses a lot on your interview with Dr. Paul Bajwa. Tell us about that conversation and kind of set it up as far as what a listener can expect to learn from him. 
Sure. So Dr. Bajwa is actually an emergency physician who has worked in Florida before and also now in Canada. And what we really talked about was more on the healthcare workers side as to what they face in terms of extreme COVID fatigue and how that comes with their own risks and rising levels of anxiety and emotional exhaustion that they go through. They have to make hard decisions and decide who needs the care and these services the most. Thank you, Dr. Bajwa, for joining us today. It's great to have you here and to have an opportunity to hear from the front lines on how, as an emergency physician, you were experiencing and treating COVID-19 directly. As well as we will talk a bit about, you know, your own experiences with the inequities of the health system in the U.S. and globally, and what you see while working firsthand with the patients. So let's first talk about your choice to work as a physician. Why medicine? What inspired you? Thank you first for having me on the show. I guess your question is a question that they ask to pretty much all physicians when they enter med school is why medicine? You know, most physicians have a story behind it. So I'll, I'll give you a, a bit of a story. When I was growing up, I actually wanted to be a police officer. I thought it was the most rewarding thing. I would see police officers on the road. And as I was going through school, I was on a call with one of my friends who was a police officer. And it was, ended up being a medical call. And I noticed that they're kind of almost first responders, just like emergency medicine is. And that kind of opened my eyes up into medicine. And I decided to do a, a elective away in India. And they put me in the emergency room the first day that I was there. And I had a child that had his hand caught in a sugarcane wheel. I couldn't really do anything to help him. Uh, his hand was very badly damaged. But I remember I literally just went over and I sat with him and I put my arm around him. And I think at that point, I realized that medicine might be the path for me because he was, you know, obviously crying, but that sitting there and soothing him really drove me towards medicine. Wow, what a story. One of the next questions I had was, you know, why emergency medicine? I mean, of course, you, you know, kind of mentioned that and touched that. But do you see there is more to it than just being a physician that you really wanted to serve in the emergency medicine area? When I was going through medical school, I appreciated all the different fields, but nothing really hit home for me until I did emergency medicine. When patients enter a hospital, that is the first place they go. No one knows what's going on with a patient. You were the first one to see them. And so I enjoyed that aspect. I enjoyed that aspect of being the first person to see the patient, being the first person to diagnose something, because it really starts there. That initial contact is what drove me to emergency medicine. So as you trained to become a doctor, did you personally ever see, you know, over the years, any health inequities? You were also in India, you said, right? So, I mean, I, I would say not just in the US, but also globally, where the challenges that came up through the system, you know, specifically in caring for the underserved communities and specifically who gets care. Did you see that? So, you know, I think each country has their deficits, but I definitely see a disparity in healthcare in every single country that I've been in a hospital with or I've spent some time with. One of the main things across the board that I've noticed is the preventative care for the underprivileged to prevent long-term diseases. And by that, I mean, you know, if you break your hand, 
you're going to be seen no matter where you go, right? That is an acute problem that will be treated. But if you have longstanding hypertension or high blood pressure, that may not be seen in a lot of countries. And a lot of people may not have access to manage that or to get to a physician. So I think the biggest disparity that I've noticed across the board, no matter where I went, is to prevent these preventable diseases, especially in the underprivileged. The way to fix that is to get access to healthcare, to get access to a family doctor or primary doctor. Right. I mean, you talk about preventive care. That's very interesting. I mean, in various episodes that we've had so far, Daniel Dowes and Peter Hotez, where we have often talked about how health and economic crisis stemming from COVID situation at this point in time has only magnified the systemic barriers to health and how they're particularly worse for these marginalized groups. But it has been existing and there are certain areas which have been completely overlooked, you know, for years. And I believe these complexities demand for accountability, transparency, and also solutions that transcend health and healthcare programs as they've been designed, you know, traditionally. Do you have a take on that? Yeah, so absolutely. I think, you know, COVID-19 has definitely brought to light the disparities in healthcare and especially the underprivileged communities. Initially, when this disease came out, I, I had a theory, and I'm sure a lot of physicians did as well, that there were going to be risk factors that when you look back at the thousands and hundreds and millions of patients that have been affected, who has been affected the most? And there have been some small studies that have come out of the States and globally that African-Americans, people with obesity, people with smoking, you know, are the ones that are affected most. And some of these things like smoking, smoking cessation, preventing smoking is a very simple task that you can, you know, start with public health. And some countries have done it much better than others. Obesity, especially in the United States, is a big concern. But these things have been really brought to light with this disease. And it's important. It's important that we just don't throw them to the wayside when this disease is controlled. So I think it's a great point that you bring up. COVID-19 definitely has brought to light a lot of the disparities in healthcare. So talking about COVID, uh, Dr. Bajwa, you contracted COVID yourself too. How was it managing your own care while also being in the same home with your family and your wife and your kids? And I believe your wife is also an emergency physician. She is. She's a family physician. But when I had COVID-19, physicians make the worst patients, by the way. And I think you, you'll, you'll find that across the board. Uh, we never think anything's wrong with us. I was practicing in the emergency room. I was on a regular shift. It was a Saturday night. COVID had just been kind of on the news for the last two or three weeks. This was back in March of last year. And I went home and I was pretty tired because I just worked six shifts in a row. And Sunday morning, I woke up completely fine. Monday, again, I felt a little bit tired and I just thought it was from the weekend. And Monday night, I woke up at midnight and immediately I knew something was wrong. I hadn't felt kind of this way in a long, long time. I think the last time I probably felt this way was when I had the flu, which must have been five or six years ago. And I had diffuse body aches. I had a pretty, pretty bad headache, uh, enough that I could barely open my eyes. And so immediately I went to the spare bedroom and I texted my boss <laughs> at 1 a.m. And I said, listen, I think something's wrong. I'm going to come in for a test in the morning. And at that point, the disease was so new in Canada that the testing wasn't there. So the testing was so backlogged. They initially thought my test was going to come back in three or four days. It actually took eight days to come back. And when the test did come back, it came back negative. Luckily, I was off 
for six or seven days. So before going back to work, I called my boss and I said, listen, my test isn't back yet. My disease course luckily was only two or three days and the body aches, the headaches completely went away and I had no respiratory symptoms, thankfully. And so I got a repeat test prior to going back to work and my original test came back negative, but my repeat test came back positive, which means that my first test was a false test. And so luckily my disease course was very short compared to a lot of the other people and some of my colleagues as well. And I was out for about three weeks until I had a negative swab to get back to work. You bring an important point that it took you eight days to get tests back, just quarantining and this confusion around things and also talks a little bit about the unpreparedness that we all have been going through. Uh, we'll touch that topic a little later, but what I also caught on was that you came back after six shifts, like it's been tough, right? As an emergency physician, we all know your work is very important at any point in time, but specifically during COVID-19 pandemic, you were saving a lot of lives. And during the pandemic, we've been also reading that there's been like chaos in many hospitals globally. And this comes with rising levels of anxiety and emotional exhaustion. And I find it as a pity, you know, I was just doing some research that to date, no research has focused on the emergency physician experience during the pandemic. I saw only a few publications coming from China where they kind of did some studies on, you know, how emergency physicians, you know, really take to the stress. So as you faced, you know, you are faced with an unprecedented surge of critically ill patients showing up at the hospital without warning. What was your personal experience dealing with it? You know, working in the emergency room, you do see the worst of the worst. You're the person that's supposed to diagnose the life-threatening conditions. So that in itself is hard enough to begin with. And now you throw a disease in that process where you have to put on personal protective equipment, which takes time. You have to sift through the cases that you think are either COVID or there's something else. It adds another layer of complexity to your job. And if you do that for a month or two months, that may be okay, but people get COVID fatigue and physicians get COVID fatigue and you start missing the common cases that you normally would catch. So it is very hard on the emergency room physician and any physician in the hospital, the surgeons, the pediatricians, the OBGYNs, they also have to contemplate, is this patient COVID positive? It is taxing not only on the physicians in the hospital, but the nurses, the techs, the CT people, the radiology people, even you know the ancillary staff that's there. And then you brought up another great point as to the hospital capacity, right? So now you are adding another burden on the hospital system. And I don't care which country you go to, the amount of hospital space is not proportionate to the patient population, right? We need more hospitals everywhere we go. But the places that are really, really hard hit are the ones that their population size is large and their hospital capacity is not equivalent to that. And you look at the news any day, what are the countries that have been hit the hardest? You know, Brazil, the United States, right? These are the countries that you can see the disparity there. So it's not only taxing, I would say, on the ER physician, but it's also taxing on the hospital itself. 
I was reading more about Italy, living in Switzerland, you know, I have more context in Europe, but also, you know, a bit in US, that multiple patients will just show up. And, you know, that would mean that you would have to kind of give care at the same point in time to multiple people. And and it's evident, you know, like you're saying that critically ill patients have been far greater in number than the life-saving equipment itself, right? The ventilators, the hospital beds, monetary equipment and all of these things. And then compounding appropriate PPEs that you're talking about, for instance. And you do talk about the preparedness, right? You know, the hospital space is less than what it should be. What do you think there could have been around better preparedness and response? If we just turn back time, what could have been done, which could have made this a little bit better as a situation? You know, preparedness, especially when we've never dealt with anything like this before, is relative. And in the emergency room, we have a special department called uh, disaster preparedness. And by that, I mean, we treat for environmental disasters or chemical disasters. There's never been any type of training for a pandemic disaster or even for the hospital for that matter. So looking back at it, how could we have prepared for this? It shows that the hospitals, one, are not ready for the capacity for patients. And that's what we can see, which is pretty evident. Number two, we weren't ready as far as personal protective equipment. But I think the biggest thing would be to look at our everyday operations as a hospital and as physicians. How do we treat people who have normal conditions, yet we have to be aware about COVID? How do we treat the heart attacks and the strokes? What do we have to do differently, right? So I think moving forward, we have to think outside the box to prepare for these things. And mainly, I think the big thing is getting the hospital capacities up to par to deal with all the patients. And I think a lot of countries are already doing that, especially here in Canada. And you talked interestingly also about the staff and, you know, a lot of the physicians within the hospital itself. And would you like to talk a bit about emotions, stress, anxiety, moral injury, and even the department culture change during this pandemic, right? I mean, how do you keep all those healthcare support functions and staff motivated to keep going? It's a tough job. It's a very tough job. You know, it's, I think the emotions is the biggest uh, factor that we all have to, I think, control and also deal with. I think it's something that we have to talk about. I'll give you an example. Recently, I had a patient who was presumed to be COVID positive, was not breathing too well. And I had to put a breathing tube down to help him breathe. And when I came out of the room, we have a system where the nurses watch us and we watch the nurses as we take off our protective equipment as to not to contaminate everything. And I was taking off my equipment and my unit secretary came to me and said, hey, the patient's husband is on the phone, which by the way, I think we should also talk about that patient's families are not allowed in the hospital, which is a big anxiety, especially for the patient, but also for the families. Imagine sending your family member in and you have no idea what's going on. So as I was taking off my equipment, I forgot to take off my mask, which technically is contaminated. And I went to the seat and I put it onto the desk. And my nurse, who's one of my outstanding nurses, asked me to dispose of it properly and I didn't. And I kind of brushed her away in a sense that, hey, let me deal with this patient's family, which is you know obviously concerned, but I should have dealt with her concerns as well. So there's this aspect of emotions are running high with everyone. But it's such a stressful time, not only to the families, but to the physicians, to the nurses. So you have to be mindful of 
a lot of the emotions that are going on in the hospital, especially when people are extremely sick. I think that's the hardest aspect to deal with is you're not sure, you know, who's feeling angry or who's feeling upset, but you have to be there pretty much for everyone. In the context of what you're saying in your story, I was just reading that the burnout rate of doctors practicing emergency medicine in specific is estimated to be about 86%, according to a recent survey by Canadian Association of Emergency Physicians. And also recently, uh, one doctor's death in Quebec, Canada, where, you know, she committed suicide and that sent shockwaves in the Canada's medical community. The point I want to just kind of bring in here is it's not just we are poorly prepared in terms of infrastructure. We're also poorly prepared and little aware of the potential devastation of the healthcare communities worldwide, right? What's your take on that? When I was working in Florida and I was part of the administrative staff of the hospital that I worked at, I brought up this exact topic. I said, we need more support for physicians dealing with kind of the everyday emotions that they have. There was no support system. If a physician felt depressed or angry, there was nowhere for them to go to, right? The hospital had no ancillary staff for them. We don't have that here as well, right? So it's a huge problem. Imagine going to an emergency room and your physician has worked eight days or nine days in a row and they are back after six hours of work. Do you really want them taking care of you? Is there a chance that they miss something? Absolutely. So there is very little support for physicians as far as their emotions. And it's a big problem because it definitely affects performance in anything you do. You look at sports players, you look at anything, it's the same, right? You need that support, especially in high stress situations. And so there is a disparity. And I believe the numbers that you've looked up, I think they're probably at that number. Would you like to share some of the toughest moments that you faced as uh, as, as an ER physician during COVID times where you felt helpless? powerless, and you wanted to help patient that you could not help. Do you have any moments of grief, any story to share? Yeah, I'll actually have, I have two stories. One is COVID related. One is not COVID related. One of which was not my story, but I felt for the physician because I trained with him and he's a good friend of mine. And he went off to LA County to be an attending and he's been there for about six or seven years. And he called me a month ago and he seemed very down and LA County is one of those counties that have been hit extremely hard because their patient population is so large and their capacity is so small that they have actually told some of their EMS personnel that if a patient has known to be COVID and they have a lot of comorbidities and they appear extremely sick, to consider not transporting them to the hospital because their hospitals are so full. And, and they obviously have to talk to the physician who is there at the hospital and give the vitals and the scenario. But I remember my colleague who called me after his night shift, he said that he got a call from the paramedics that it was his neighbor that they called in. And his neighbor actually was picked up and on the way to the hospital passed away. And so, you know, it's one of those things that as emergency physicians, you see death all the time and you almost get immune to it. You kind of brush it off. But I could feel the pain in his voice. And it was one of those things that initially you feel the pain, but then it just becomes numb. And I had a similar case, which was not a COVID case. It actually just happened yesterday. I had a patient who was a 34-year-old who was a mom of two, who actually saw my wife as her doctor. And she was complaining of abdominal pain. And my wife ended up getting an ultrasound. 
And the ultrasound was concerning for a possible new type of cancer. And she was sent into the emergency room because we needed to do a CT scan. And when we did the CT scan, we confirmed the diagnosis. But because of COVID, the time for her to get referred to oncology is going to take some time. And I remember just sitting with her and I, I cried with her, you know, because this is something that shouldn't, you shouldn't have to wait for. You shouldn't have to wait for seeing an oncologist and getting treatment started just because a virus is out there. And a 34-year-old mom with two kids, it, it's something that hit home. And it's just one of those things that in a normal world without a pandemic, this would have been dealt with much faster. Moving on a bit into what's to come as an ER doctor, are you also seeing any spike in other non-related COVID cases? Is that putting a strain on the hospitals as well? Absolutely. You know, the, we have right now in Ontario, where I work, a stay-at-home order, at least for 30 days. And, you know, when you have a pandemic like this, the diseases that should be brought to light are not brought to light. So, for example, people who have abdominal pain are scared to come to the hospital because of COVID-19. And when they do come in, they have the most severe problems that should have been dealt with a month ago or two months ago. I recently had a case of a person who had right lower quadrant pain, and they clearly had appendicitis, and they sat at home for four days, and now their appendicitis ruptured. And now they're in the hospital for a couple of days because that rupture causes them to become septic. So these common diseases, appendicitis, heart attacks, strokes, gallbladder problems, these should be dealt with because they're emergent. And people choose not to come, which is rightfully so because they're scared of COVID-19 and the government has told them stay at home. So it's a very big problem because common diseases are being missed and common diseases are going to the extremes. So it's more of a burden when they come in this late. On one hand, we talk about these diseases and where people are not even coming to the hospitals because they want to feel safe, as well as we talk about healthcare workers and physicians who are, you know, kind of doing so much more to just get through the day, you know. And at the same time, I want to have your perception about general population, you know, how they are reacting to the measures in place globally, you know, to contain this virus, you know, who could be actually influential in getting these numbers down, like wearing masks, you know, keeping distances, etc. You obviously do understand disease more than any other man on the street does. But how do you respond to, you know, people not really taking care on these measures? Yeah, you know, it's hard because I came from a place called Florida, which a lot of people in that state have not taken this disease seriously. You have the extremes in that state of the very, very old people who are very susceptible to disease and a lot of young people, especially in Southeast Florida, who don't think that the disease is actually true or it's not going to affect them. And then you have people that are kind of in between that do wear masks, that sometimes comply with the regulations. One of the reasons why I came to Canada was because the Canadian belief, do what's right for others, put others in front of yourself. And I really appreciated that about my family and friends that were up here, and I wanted to be more like that. It's hard because it's hard to get everyone on board on the same page. And even as simple as mask wearing, that is probably one of the most simplest things that anyone can do. Or even social distancing, right? Distance someone by six feet. It truly doesn't sound hard, but no one does it because I think it's in human nature to try to do the opposite. 
If I were to pick, and I know there's a lot of weapons now against COVID-19, we have social distancing, we have mask wearing, we even have vaccines. Out of all those things, I think the biggest thing you could do is social distance. If I didn't have the vaccine, I would social distance. And if I couldn't social distance, I would wear a mask. And finally, I would get the vaccine. I think that is probably the last resort because it's going to take time for the vaccine to roll out. There's a lot of people out there that don't believe, one, in this virus, and number two, in the prevention of this virus. But you can see the numbers on the news. And, you know, I I don't joke with people, but I say, if you really don't believe this, come to an emergency room and let me show you. A lot you're talking about is really the personal accountability and social responsibility. But I imagine you guys as healthcare workers on frontline, and especially on top of that with COVID, you have an extra challenge being at a higher risk of contracting the disease. I mean, I've seen some pictures wearing face shields and moon suits and all that gear to protect yourself. And we are such a visual society. If we, if we, we haven't seen those struggles of healthcare workers, we believe, you know, it's not happening, right? So I take your point to that and do take pictures from there and maybe post it. I think it's going to really work because we need a behavior change in people, in my opinion. Let's dive deeper a bit into healthcare systems in the U.S. versus Canada. I mean, you've worked in both the places. And one of my questions was that why did you make a choice to move to Canada, which you kind of answered. But also, what has been your experience so far working within the two different healthcare systems? So I trained in a state called Connecticut, and then I moved to Florida for about six years. There's a lot of major differences between the two countries on healthcare in general. One of the biggest differences is access to healthcare. If you make healthcare part of your taxes, which Canada has, it's a big difference in the preventable diseases like we talked about, hypertension, diabetes, high cholesterol. In years to come, that prevents people from being hospitalized. And that's what has made, I think, Canada so great that everyone starting from birth has access to healthcare. In the United States, not everyone has access to healthcare. So you see the most disastrous outcomes because people don't have management to high blood pressure. You see the strokes, you see the bad heart attacks. And don't get me wrong, you see them here as well, but it's gratifying to see people know their medical history, know what medications they're on, know the last time they saw a doctor. So I think preventive healthcare is one thing. Now, one thing that America is great at is if you want to have a procedure done, say you have hurt your knee and you tore your ACL and you want surgery tomorrow, you will get surgery tomorrow. You have to find an orthopedic surgeon and your insurance covers it and they'll do the surgery. Because ACL surgery is not emergent here in Canada, you may have to wait a couple months. And I personally have not hurt my ACL, so I'm not in that picture. But if I were to, I would say I'm okay with waiting. I'm okay with waiting four or five months because someone out there needs more emergent treatment. That's kind of that sacrifice for the greater good. But I have an analogy for U.S. healthcare in a sense that it's like Amazon, right? You click the order on Amazon, it's there in 48 hours. If you want something done in the United States, you will get it done in the United States. But you may have to wait in a lot of socialized healthcare settings. And it's a trade-off. Some people don't want to wait for that, and some people are willing to wait for that. That's a great point you touch on, access to healthcare. And here, living in Switzerland, I mean, it's one of the best examples of that as well. I mean, it's really very much similar to what you're saying in Canada as well. Perhaps the most talked about topic right now and would love to get your views on it. I'm sure you've been asked a hundred times, 
What do you think about vaccines and do you think of them as a promise? So I think vaccines in general have done a great good in global healthcare. If you look at diseases like measles and mumps, we've done such a great job with those. And I think that vaccinating children has gone a long way. You look at the Gates Foundation and what they have done. As far as the COVID-19 vaccine, because it's so new, we really don't know how far it's going to go. We have trials, but I think in the long term, it's probably going to be close to what they have advertised. And I think it's going to be another tool to battle COVID-19. Do I think it's going to be the end-all, be-all treatment? I don't think so. I think we have come to a, a new realization that viruses are prevented by distancing and by wearing masks. But I think getting the vaccine is absolutely going to help in reducing the transmission of COVID-19. Will it absolutely stop the transmission? I do not think it's going to stop the transmission. I think eventually a lot of us will get immune to it either via the vaccine itself or via herd immunity. But I think we've come to a realization that we need to do other things besides vaccines to prevent disease, washing our hands, wearing masks. This may be a new norm that we're, we're going into. Um, it's, I guess, only time will tell. But back to your question, I 100% support vaccines. Yes, there have been side effects to some vaccines. As you know, some vaccines can cause these terrible diseases like Guillain-Barre and Bell's palsy. But in the realm of all the people that have been vaccinated in the world, this is a small, small percentage. And I think for the greater good, vaccines have done a great service to all of humanity. Right. And I do agree that, you know, vaccines is not the only solution. We have to continue wearing masks and take tests and preventive measures need to be done as well. But in specific to where you are in terms of Canada, you know, how has been the vaccine response there and the rollout? How does that look like? Yeah. So, you know, every government's different here. We have just recently started it back in late December. So now it is mid-January. So like a lot of the other countries, we are vaccinating first the most susceptible populations, which is the elderly people, the immunocompromised, the residents in long-term care, the workers in long-term care, and then the high-risk healthcare workers, which would be the ICU doctors, the emergency medicine doctors, the nursing staff, the ancillary staff in those areas, the pharmacists. You know, if you look at all the research throughout the world, these are the populations that have been affected the most. But I think Canada overall is doing a great job with what they have. Obviously, everyone needs more vaccines, but prioritizing the vaccines and distribution of the vaccines, I think Canada is doing a great job so far. In that context, maybe one of the last questions I have for you is, a little bit long term and what we are starting to see is also a mental health crisis. People are tired of this, of course. It's taken a toll on people. So what's your take on that? And if there's any advice that you could give to people, that would be great as well. I have not seen this much mental health illness in my career. My career so far has been about eight years after residency. And in this past year, I've probably seen more mental health complaints and patients than I'd have in the first seven years of my career. This is, again, a stressful time in all of our lives, whether it's not even a healthcare worker, whether it's a frontline worker, whether, you know, if you're just staying at home, it's very stressful. So I think this has shed a lot of light on mental health and mental health issues. It has probably worsened people who already have mental health issues. 
And I think there should be a big push. I know Canada here, we have recently passed some legislature that brings more availability to mental health to the public. And I think other countries should be doing the same to follow because this is going to be a big problem as we recover from COVID-19. This is a time where you should be helping your neighbors. You should be lending a hand and calling a neighbor or calling a friend and being there for others. It's going to be stressful for years to come. It's one of those times that we'll never see again. We'll talk to our kids about this. And this is a time where we should be there for each other. Dr. Bajwa, thanks for sharing your experiences as someone who has lived this COVID-19 experience in terms of physical, emotional and psychological challenges, you know, of working through this pandemic. And you, along with all healthcare workers on the front lines, they have experienced significant losses, trauma, grief and a burden that is really hard to put in words. So all we can say is you've been doing a tremendous job and absolutely deserve all our respect. So thank you. I appreciate you having me. Thank you so much. Transitioning from Dr. Bajwa, an ER physician and hero faced with impossible decisions day to day, whose mental health and well-being are compromised because the healthcare system is on the brink of collapse at any given time. And like so many others, he doesn't have the luxury of taking a break. We hear from Melitza Rangel and the tragedies she's experienced firsthand, including the loss of her father. I want to warn you, there is no sugarcoating this. Melitza was a patient, a family member who lost her father, and a nurse who truly empathized with her caregivers all at once. I want to start with you sharing some fond memories of your family and your dad. You know, growing up, my dad was our everything to us, not just, I don't literally say our everything because he was our father, but he was our mechanic, our plumber, our, you know, our welder, our handyman. He he was a person that was always there for us. Um, my dad was always, you know, the person that motivated us the most. And even though he um, was disabled, he he really was very involved in everything that we did. And he was a positive influencer in our lives. And that's something that that I hold dearly with my heart because it's a something that I don't ever want to forget. Yes, of course, of course. Now I want to talk about your experience with COVID, your personal experience. Can you share with us how it all started, your COVID symptoms? My COVID symptoms started in June. I had learned that I had got exposed, right? So I immediately isolated myself. I was feeling very tired. I wasn't really feeling very hungry. I noticed I was heavily sweating. Within maybe like three days, I developed a lot of facial pain. So I did develop a fever. It was about 101. Soon after, maybe like within two days, I noticed that just walking to the restroom, I was very short of breath. So at that point, you know, I decided to get a a note to a pulse oximeter so that I could actually take my oxygen levels and see where I was at. On the 20th, I went to the hospital and one of the things they did was they gave me antibiotics, they gave me steroids, which were going to help me with my lungs. I believe they even gave me a Rosefin shot and then they sent me home and they're like, okay, you're still good. Just, you know, try to relax. 
So were they saying you have COVID or were they just treating the symptoms, not knowing that it was COVID? At that time, I still hadn't gotten my results. So when you went to the hospital, one of the main things they did is that if you had any sort of symptoms that were related to COVID, you were automatically put with people that had COVID. So I was like, let's say if I would have been negative at that point, I would have been exposed because of the fact that they had to separate anybody that had the symptoms and put all those individuals together. So I was in a room with a whole bunch of other people that had symptoms. Yeah, that's kind of scary to think of because you you don't know who's really sick and who's not. And as you've said, you could be exposing yourself to the virus just by being there when you're trying to get better. So after I went to the hospital, I went twice, right? Because I, I kept developing the shortness of breath. Do you feel because you're young, they didn't take it as seriously, maybe? I don't have like um, pre-existing conditions. So I'm guessing it was more of a, your oxygen is still okay. You should be fine. Which I understand because at that point there was no rooms and everybody that was in the hospital was because they were in critical condition. You know, you had to meet a criteria to get admitted. So on the third time that I ended up going to the hospital was because I blacked out. I tried to go to the restroom. I felt my body shutting down and I screamed for help. That's the last thing I remember. And then the next thing, well, my father was there trying to, to help me, of course, and rush me to the hospital. I couldn't walk. I felt like I was suffocating. I, I was just coughing and coughing and You know, the biggest thing on my head was I just exposed my father. I was very scared, but at the same time, my dad's like, why wouldn't I do it? You're my daughter. Wow. So um, he's my hero. That's the love a father has for his kids. Yes. So do you know whether an EMT service was called for you or not? Or do you not remember because you were passing out? No, my dad didn't call because he knew that everything was very packed and We had already been hearing the news. There was ambulances with actual patients waiting in the ambulances. He just rushed me straight to the hospital. I mean, my oxygen was in the low 80s. If I walked, it went into the 70s. Like I, I was pretty cyanotic. I, I, I felt like if I took any steps or if I walked that I was going to die. It's not something that I wish on anybody. It was a very horrible feeling. Yeah, I can't even imagine. So your dad makes the ultimate sacrifice and takes you to the hospital. Tell us about your experience this time around at the hospital. When we got to the hospital, they were a little bit more organized. I remember the first time I went, there was just a crowd of people outside, you know, waiting to even go into the ER or, you know, waiting to go in through the COVID site. Um, when we got there, the lady in the front, I remember that she uh, asked my dad what was wrong because he's the one that got off. And he's like, my daughter can't breathe. He's like, we need a wheelchair. And um, they they said, well, you grab it, right? So my dad grabbed the wheelchair. He's the one that wheeled me into the hospital. Once I was there, they checked my oxygen levels And at that point, they're like, okay, you can't really walk. And I was like, no, I, I can't breathe. And that's where they admitted me. When I got there, it didn't take that long. I want to say maybe like 
30 minutes max before they put me in a room. And was that room by yourself or with other people? When I was in the ER, I was by myself for two days. And after two days, I shared a room with an older lady who had COVID and she was um, passing. Wow. That must have been tough. How, how do you feel about the care that you receive or lack of care, if you feel that way, at the hospital? When I was at the hospital, I, I had this one episode where I really needed to go to the restroom. But at the same time, we kept hearing code blue like maybe every 30 minutes, right? And what does code blue mean again? Koblu means that somebody is unresponsive, they're crashing, they're dying. I mean, you're pretty much trying to save somebody from dying. Being a nurse, I know that somebody is going into cardiac arrest anytime I hear code blue. So I, I knew what that was. That day, I could see the nurses running back and forth, and I really needed to go to the restroom. The thing is that when you have COVID, you're stuck to your bed, you're bed bound. Any step that I took, even if it was to go to the restroom, I felt like I was going to pass out and die. I felt really horrible. I was scared to like pass out in the restroom and just suffocate. I was terrified. I am not going to lie. It was something that was very scary. It was a horrible experience. I remember calling the cobble so that the nurses could come and they never came. I waited an hour. I called again and they're like, it's because we're having a lot of emergencies, which honestly I understood because I kept hearing all the coding. I try to hold it at least, I want to say three hours without going to the restroom until I just couldn't anymore. So I grabbed whatever I could and I had to use that to go to the restroom on my own in my own bed um, and try not to dirty anything because at that point, like I just couldn't hold it anymore. Eventually, the nurse got there and she's like, I am so sorry. At that point, I couldn't be mad because I saw her face. She wanted to cry. Like the workload that she had was too much for her. And I remember her telling me, it's because I have like 30 patients. So me putting myself in her position, I'm like, if I have all patients that are bed bound, there's no way I could provide the proper care for any of them. I just told her not to worry about it. I felt bad because I had pretty much made a mess. There was no way that I wanted to put any more stress on somebody that's trying their best to help somebody when I know they don't have the resources to do it. Wow, you have such a great heart because you know a lot of people would not be thinking about somebody else and feeling empathy at that moment. They would just be frustrated. I am a nurse, so I know that they were suffering just as much as we were. So I was there for about, I want to say a week and a half. And because we're all on oxygen, none of us could shower. We weren't allowed to shower. So when I made a mess, I asked her, you know, I know that you have a lot going on and I know that you cannot help me. I'm like, but can you at least bring me a new basin with water and soap? I told her I would like to like clean myself, like, you know, at least do a bed bath on my own. And that is what I did. Um, I did a, a bed bath on my own and she did bring me the like the little shampoo and everything so that I could try to do it on my own. So eventually you started to get better, right? Yes. Anytime that I tried to breathe, like 
you breathe in and you take in that gulp of air. But when you have COVID, it's like you try to breathe and it's just stuck and it doesn't go into your lungs. And that's how I felt. 24 hours after I had plasma, I actually was able to take my first breath by myself. And I was shocked. I'm like, okay, this is actually working. So tell us about the progression of you getting better and what was happening on the opposite end of the spectrum with your father. So when I was getting better, my dad started to get worse. He started developing a cough and then my son would call us and he's like, oh, his oxygen's in the 80s, um, where he started dropping even more and then his blood sugar started rising. And at that point, it's like, okay, we need to take him to the hospital. So my sisters called EMS so they can pick up my father. And then maybe two hours passed and EMS never came. My sisters called EMS again and EMS told them that there was no space, that they couldn't pick him up. So they canceled the ambulance services for my father. At that point, my sister came immediately to pick up my dad. She put on full PPE and rushed him to the hospital. That was the only option we had. Wow. So when he got to the hospital, do you know how long before his symptoms got worse? He was in the ER for three days and his symptoms started getting worse the day that he was supposed to be released. My dad was never able to get plasma right away like I was because there wasn't any more. I tried to donate myself, but because I had just had COVID, they're like, you don't even have antibodies yet. It takes a while for your body to develop them. I wanted to see my dad old. And I knew that he had diabetes and I knew he had hypertension. So I knew at one point this was going to probably kill him. But I didn't think that COVID, which was a virus that appeared out of nowhere, right, was actually going to take what we cared for the most, which was my father. It really broke my heart. Overall, the fact that we couldn't be there to hold his hand and we couldn't be there at all with him, it still seems very surreal. Like, it seems like it's all a lie, like it's fake, but it isn't. A lot of people are like, COVID's a joke. COVID is it's not real. I had COVID and I had no symptoms. Okay, well, some people really don't have symptoms and they are lucky and they are fortunate. But for those who have gone through COVID and have experienced loss, it is something that you don't wish on anybody. It is something very hurtful and it's very real. And it's something that I hope that a lot of people really, really, really make sure that they're doing everything in order to not get sick. And just if, you know, when you leave home, you know, hug, hug those people, you know, hug your parents, hug your families, because you don't know if you're going to see them next or if you're never going to see them again. At this point, this is what it's come down to. And as sad as it is, it's what's going on right now. Mm -hmm. I'm so sorry about your loss. I, I'm sorry about your experience. I'm sorry that you missed opportunity to receive the care that you deserve in a first world country. And, you know, I understand you have empathy for the nurses, but, you know, at the same time, it's heart-wrenching to hear that you weren't able to be taken care of the way you should have been taken care of. My favorite thing when you were talking about your dad is how your face lit up. You're sharing your memories of him. How would you like for us to remember your father? My dad, he um, he was the best. 
he was the best. I just want everybody to remember him as a person that always um, gave his heart to anybody. Strangers or no strangers, anybody on the street, he would actually stop and, you know, try to help those in need, even though we didn't have much. My dad did a lot of things for a lot of people. And I think what I want him to remember the most was how he always had a smile. Can you imagine having a family member denied ambulance service? What about being in the shoes of an ER physician who has to decide where to allocate limited resources and your decision means the death of somebody else's family member? How about having a heart so strong that you can actually separate your personal loss and suffering from the pain that your caregivers experience as we heard from Melitza? Folks, things will get better. But we have to be serious about these lessons. Our healthcare system was not built to weather this storm, even if we're supposed to be the shining city on the hill. To continue shining, we need to continue the progress toward health equity and meet this moment wide-eyed. We need to improve resources to our local health agencies, as we continue to say. And we have to have a better plan for our frontline heroes to cope with the decisions and the trauma that they've endured and will inevitably continue to endure during this pandemic. At the risk of sounding like a broken record, I want to remind you of something. As hard as it is to wear a mask, to separate from your friends and loved ones, and as much as your life has been disrupted from this pandemic, every decision you make is life or death. I'm not trying to sensationalize this. The decisions that you make today, if they don't affect your own family or you, they affect someone like Melitza or Dr. Bajwa. So please consider their stories and the impact of your decisions. Thank you so much for joining us again. We'll keep bringing truth no matter how hard it is. And we'll see you soon. Listen to Contact World, the podcast on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.